Welcome to episode 326 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. That's Monster Kid Radio. I'm your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook, and we are kicking off the show with a song from the band Los Deformes. They're based out of Spain, and the song is called Calegues de Retrete. I don't speak Spanish, but I think that's how you pronounce it, and I know this is how that song sounds. I dig it. I think you guys and gals will dig it as well. It's from their B-Sides release. You can find them at losdeformes.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net and check them out when you're done listening to this episode. What do we got lined up for this episode? Well, I've got my friend Troy Howarth back on the show. Now, this will be, I think, the third time, if not the fourth time I've recorded with Troy, the second time that he's been here on Monster Kid Radio. He was on the show not too long ago in April and we talked about the movie The Ape Man well we have another Bela Lugosi Poverty Row horror film that we're talking about this time around it's the movie Invisible Ghost from 1941 directed by Joseph H. Lewis normally I'd play a trailer for the movie right about here but the only trailer that I've been able to find online which unfortunately seems to be the case with a lot of movies from the 1940s, is almost nothing but music, no narration, nothing to identify the trailer as actually being from The Invisible Ghost, so I'm not going to waste your time. However, I will be playing some other trailers up and on through the show. If you're new to the show, welcome aboard. If you're an old listener, welcome back. I'm eager to get to this conversation with Troy, but first, we have an email. This email comes from listener Terry Mount. Thank you so much for last week's podcast. As a vendor at Monster Bash, I didn't get to hear a lot of the panels. You just fixed that amazing. It was so great seeing you and Scott this last weekend. I just can't tell you how much I appreciated meeting you. It was the true highlight of my first experience at Monster Bash. I really appreciated the tip on the B-Movie cookbook. They, the authors, Nick and Fiona, were so much fun to chat with. I also enjoyed meeting Christopher Mim. Thanks to your info, I'm now the proud owner of the entire Mimiverse collection, which I am working through as I begin sewing for Flashback Weekend in Chicago in August. I'm also checking out more of your older podcasts. I was surprised you didn't have Attack of the Giant Leeches, or did I miss that somehow? It is one of those lovable B-movies that is just way too much fun. If you haven't seen it, please check it out. Well, I need to get back to work. Again, it was great seeing you. Hope you enjoy the bag. Terrifically yours, Terry Mount. Now, Terry is a listener of Monster Kid Radio, has been for a long time, and I consider her a friend. She's a great person, and to meet her at Monster Bash was fantastic. Now, she mentioned a bag. She gave me a messenger bag that is just so cool. It's a bag that she made using fabric, highlighting the creature from the Black Lagoon, and there's also some hammer film stuff on the inside for the interior pockets, and it's just awesome. I love that bag. As soon as she gave it to me, I started using it that weekend. I wasn't going to have a big bag with me walking the floor of Monster Bash, just because, you know, I wanted to be a little bit more free, but, you know, I had that bag, and I, I couldn't help but <laughs> just love it and use it, and I've been using it ever since I've, since I've been home too and it sits quite well on my shoulder that's just it's a well-made bag so terry thank you listeners check out her facebook page terry creates all kinds of different projects using monster fabrics and materials check out that's terry dash ific that's terry ific on facebook i'll make sure there's a link in the show notes Terry, it was a real honor to meet you at Monster Bash as well. And that was one of the best things about Monster Bash is meeting people in person, people that I've never met before. It was just awesome to see. And, of course, meeting old friends as well. Now, she mentioned Christopher R. Mim. He is a mainstay at Monster Bash. I think he is anyway. <laughs> at least he's been there the two times I've gone. 
And he's always working it, selling his movies and making people very happy because these movies are really good. The Mimiverse movies I've talked about here on the show quite a bit, and I can't wait for the next movie, The Demon with the Atomic Brain. I know it's in post-production. I, I can't wait to see it later this year. And I really hope you enjoy all the movies that you've picked up. I know other listeners of the show have picked up those movies as well. Uh, Steve Turk, I'm talking to you. Uh, he's been posting on Facebook his journey through the Mimiverse films and enjoying them as he goes. I'm glad to hear it. Anything that I can do to help spread the monster love around, you know I'm going to do. Terry also mentioned the B-Movie Cookbook. I had Nick Brown and Fiona Young-Brown on the show not too long ago talking about this book. You can get the book yourself now by going to bmovieman.com. Again, there will be a link in the show notes. To order the book, it is a cookbook using... 1950s B-movies as inspiration for the different recipes in the book. And yeah, I'm a vegetarian and I still found things to enjoy in the book. So check it out. Let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Terry, thank you so much for writing in. If you want to write in like Terry did, you can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Or you can even call us and leave a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. All right, let's dive into the meat of this show. Let's get our Bela Lugosi on. We're going to meet up with Troy Howarth and talk about Invisible Ghost right after this. Perhaps it was inevitable. For years, Vincent Price has played the role of Dr. Death. For years, he has pretended to be a hideous, murdering monster. Now... He has actually become one. American International presents Vincent Price in Madhouse. Madhouse, where lunacy lives, fear lurks, evil walks, and death waits. Madhouse, an endless nightmare from which there is no return. Cinematic shock treatment guaranteed to scare you out of your mind. No one ever leaves Madhouse. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Journey into double terror with the late night double feature. With X, the fiend from beyond space, and the wall people. A crew of interstellar explorers must fight an unstoppable alien fiend from beyond space, hell-bent on consuming them all. Will they survive? Can they survive? And on the same program, a man must fight to save his only child from the clutches of strange invaders who use their advanced technologies to steal sleeping children through their bedroom walls. Are your children safe? Two terrors to tear you apart in the late night double feature. Jackie Ray Naaman Jones. I play Debbie in Monos, The Hands of Fate, and you're listening to Monster Kid Radio. The sound you hear is dripping blood. This is the start of Black Sunday. 
Black Sunday comes but once every hundred years. On that day, the undead demons of hell rise to unleash an orgy of evil on the world. From Nikolaj Gogol's great classic, American International Pictures presents Black Sunday, the most frightening motion picture you have ever seen. She was murdered 500 years ago. There in the barren waste that was her cemetery, they nailed the mask of Satan to her face. Not since Dracula stalked the earth has there been such an unspeakable day and night as Black Sunday. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Well, listeners, I want to welcome back to Monster Kid Radio, Troy Howard, a man whose names are on a number of the books on my bookshelf and whose voice are on a number of my DVDs. Or well, not necessarily DVDs, I guess Blu-rays, aren't they? Troy, welcome back to Monster Kid Radio. Well, thank you for having me back. You know, I mentioned Blu-rays, and we talked a little bit about this last time you were here. Kaltiki is out now on Blue. Have you listened to it or seen it at all? Oh, yeah. I watched it right away. And uh, as I figured they would, they did a, a magnificent job with it. I mean, it's really just a beautiful presentation of a movie that never really had been treated very well on video before. It's, it's nice when a, a little movie like this that's been kind of ignored down through the years gets uh, released, but not only released, but gets a really kind of stacked special edition like that uh they they put two commentaries on it which is kind of unusual they, they got me for one and tim lucas did the other kim newman did an on-camera interview about the film he's always entertaining to watch and uh some old uh, sort of recycled material from an italian uh, dvd release uh, like with luigi cozzi who apart from being a director is a real fan of monster movies and uh, he knew Mario Bava and interviewed him and, and uh, Ricardo Freda as well. So got a little bit of behind the scenes uh, sort of stories from him uh, about the making of the movie, which is uh, not entirely a Freda film, not entirely a Bava film. It's kind of a mongrel, but it's a, it's a very lovable mongrel like uh, so many mongrels tend to be. <laughs> Ages ago, in a long-lost part of the world, the Mayans worshipped a terrifying goddess. To her, men offered their strength and their devotion. Women offered the beauty of their bodies. Al-Tiki, the immortal monster. Today, courageous adventurers, dedicated scientists of both sexes, begin the exploration of recently discovered caverns buried in the very womb of the earth. Ah! 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 
from space beyond space comes force beyond measurement, energizing this monstrous mass of man-eating protoplasm that devours every living thing it touches. When her mate appears in the sky, the power of Kaltiki will destroy the world. You can believe what you like. Kaltiki's been reborn. Anything on this earth stop Kaltiki, the immortal monster. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. I mean, I've got it here. And I, I fully intend to watch it here soon and listen to your commentary. One thing that I was worried about, though, is that every time I've seen it before, it's not been the best presentation. I think that Italian DVD is probably the best it's ever looked prior to this. But before that, it's always kind of had that scratchy, dirty, in those public domain box sets kind of look. And I always felt that that kind of added to the charm of the movie a little bit because it is a greasy little movie, right? I worry that does when it gets cleaned up, does it lose some of that charm or does it look even better? Well, I mean, you know, coming from a, from the point of view of, of especially as a Bava fan, I mean, obviously he always lavished a lot of care on the lighting in his films. And this is a black and white film, so it, it has that really... Uh, contrasty kind of look that he gave to a movie like Black Sunday, for example, or The Girl Who Knew Too Much. So I don't think it loses that. I, I, a lot of people have said that too about like Night of the Living Dead or Texas Chainsaw Massacre. When they're cleaned up, do they lose any of their effectiveness? I don't think so. I, I think this just gives an opportunity to really see the movie the way it was intended to be seen. And uh, one of the nice things about it too is the fact that you, you have a choice between the really terrible English dub and the much better Italian one with English subtitles. So depending on your feelings about watching movies with subtitles, you may want to watch it that way uh, to get a better sense of uh, what the movie's like without that sort of really stiff and melodramatic uh, voiceovers that were done for the American version. Right on. Yeah, I have had that conversation regarding, like you said, Texas Chainsaw, Night of the Living Dead, uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space. Uh, Manos, the hands of fate. In fact, I had I had filmmaker Seb Godin on the show a while back. And we were talking about Manos, and and he said that he finds Manos to be a terrifying film because of the way it's shot and the way it's. I mean, it ended up. It feels almost like a snuff film. But when it got cleaned up with that restoration, I actually really adore the restoration. I think it makes the movie feel. I hate to use this word, quote unquote, more real. Well, I mean, it's it's uh, it's a unique movie, isn't it? And. <laughs> <laughs> I think like a lot of people, I first, I first discovered it on uh, Mystery Science Theater. And, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> how can you not uh, enjoy this? I, I guess you'd have to be, you'd have to have a major stick up your rear end not to be able to enjoy Manos, I think. <laughs> Anytime Torgo comes on and that music starts playing, you know, and him, him hobbling across the ground, it's just, it's wonderful. And it's so padded. Oh my God! The the women having like the tickle fights at, at the end. All of the uh, <laughs> the women in the lingerie rolling around on the ground and fighting, and, and and all the scenes with people driving and the cutaways to the couple in the car uh, making out, which which has nothing to do with anything. It's just all kinds of special. And it's never going to be a great looking movie because it's really not a well made movie. But I don't think the restoration uh, takes away from its charm at all. I, right. I, kind of adds to it a little bit <laughs> if they ever re-release it the poll quote from troy manos it's all kinds of special <laughs> i 
how how I wish Torgo, the, the guy that played Torgo, was still with us to have a, a, an audio commentary with Torgo. That would have been something special. Yeah, and, and hopefully just know how much we, you know, he may get derided, we may laugh at, but just know how much he impacted so many of us. I didn't get a chance to see it, but the Mads, uh, the original two, well, I guess not the original, but uh, Frank and Trace, uh, they were here in Portland a few nights ago doing one of their shows, and Jackie Ray Neiman Jones, who played Debbie and Manos, actually lives here in Oregon as well, and she came up on stage, introduced them, did a little bit with them while they were working on some technical difficulties. So, Debbie, you know, Jackie's got a fantastic sense of humor about the whole thing, and, you know, is very passionate about Manos. I, I love Manos, so. And the listeners, please don't think I'm, I'm you know, I love Manos. <laughs> I think it's great fun. I mean, you know, again, I, I think you'd really have to really have ice water in your veins or something not to be able to enjoy that film for what it is. I mean, it's just one of the, you know, I don't tend to go into that so bad it's good thing. But every now and again, there is a movie like that that really, you can't defend it. I mean, you really can't say that it's a great piece of filmmaking. It simply isn't. But for what it is, it's just... You know, you've never seen anything else like it. And what I like about it is the fact that it's not self-conscious about it. It's not one of those movies that's trying to be bad. I hate those movies uh, where they obviously they think they're being very clever and they're being very witty. And they're, you know, just taking it to a point that it becomes obnoxious. This is just it just worked out that way. <laughs> that way and that's what makes it special. All kinds of special. All kinds of special. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we've talked about Kaltiki, we've talked about Manos, but that's not why we have you on the show, Troy. Oh, no, that's, that's unfortunate. I could keep going on about Manos. Oh, you know, someday I need to do a proper Manos episode, although I, I imagine it probably turned into like a three or four episode run, maybe like a month of Manos. Could, could, I, could I handle that? Would my listeners be able to handle that? <laughs> the Book of Manos. Oh, there you go. There you go. Well, you're here to talk about another movie that's probably a little classier, I, I think. <laughs> uh, called Invisible Ghost from 1941, starring one of the patron saints of Monster Kid Radio, Bela Lugosi. My man, I love me some Bela, and I think he's fantastic in this. Well, I'll tell you, I think one of the great things about this movie is the fact that for the most part, he gets to play it straight. Right. Play, he gets to play kind of the, the guy next door in a way, and he's very likable. Uh, he's very sympathetic. You know, Bill Lugosi was one of those guys because of his kind of mystique and his accent and everything else. He could take the most mundane dialogue and make it special. I mean, he could be talking about his underwear being too tight and it would be wonderful because it's Bill Lugosi. These fruit of the looms, they're riding up on me. That'd be wonderful. I'd love to hear this. <laughs> we say at one point he has this cook uh, who comes in and, and is replacing a cook that's actually been murdered. And uh, <laughs> she's about ready to leave because she thinks she's done a bad job. And, and he talks her into staying. And he's so charming and so nice. And she says, oh, I can could, I could make my apple pie. Ah, oh, apple pie. That will be a treat. I just love it. I mean, you know, it's a nothing line, but it's how he says it. <laughs> and he really, throughout this movie, with some exceptions, there, there are some maybe unfortunate scenes in the movie of the more sort of horror movie variety that don't come off as well. But when he's playing just kind of nice character, last time I was on here, I was talking a little bit about um, the devil bat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That movie is introduced as this kindly uh, benevolent, beloved uh, Dr. Paul Carruthers. And he, the guy's a creep from frame one. I mean, he's leering and he's just nasty and unpleasant. Like, why would anybody think this is a nice guy here? He's a nice guy. 
He is. Mm-hmm. And, and I like him in this. I like him in this very much. I, I love him in this. I think this is one of his strongest monogram performances. And you're absolutely right. He's so nice. He's a well-respected citizen in town. And you believe that just because of the way he behaves and the way he acts and the way people defer to him and act around him. If not for the fact that it wasn't Bela Lugosi in a movie called Invisible Ghost, where on the poster he's strangling somebody, you wouldn't necessarily think it was him. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you get a sense out of this movie that had his career gone in a different direction, that maybe he could have played some quote unquote sort of straight roles in more mainstream movies. Uh, it, it's not that unlikely to believe, you know, again, watching a movie that's obviously pitifully low budget and very much a poverty row movie, but you can see that he was capable of doing that, that he wasn't necessarily always uh, going to have to play the mysterious magician, the mysterious uh, guy that everybody thinks is a vampire or whatever. Uh, he could have played, you know, the, the local judge or the local doctor or, or something, you know, some kind of authority figure who's uh, uh, kind of a warm and sympathetic guy. Uh, he gets to do that here and he does it very well. Those are actually some of my favorite bits in this film, just because I'm such a Bela fan to see him interacting with Polly Ann Young playing his daughter. I love those moments at the dinner table when they're talking, when he's supporting her while her, I guess, fiance is on death row. I'm loving these moments. They're just so good. When he interacts with Clarence Muse, those are some of my favorite bits of the film. Yeah, that's great. There's this almost sort of pointless scene where, where Clarence Muse hurts his hand. And it's really not there for any particular reason. I mean, it's nothing significant, really. But you get this scene with Lugosi tending to him and dressing the wound and saying, if you don't do something about that, it's going to get infected. And, you know, it's not like he just wants to get at him and drink his blood. He's actually he's treating him like an equal. And that's very unusual. Yeah. Zero movie uh, to have. I'm sure, we'll talk more about Clarence Muse, but Clarence Muse gets to play a, a servant who isn't doing the, you know, sort of. You know, feet studio stuff kind of routine. <laughs> I died. Uh, Manton Moreland uh, type character who's who's always reacting with the big bug eyes and everything else. You know, boss, boss. He's not doing that. He gets to play a rather dignified character. And, and the way Lugosi interacts with him, he doesn't treat him like a boss. He treats him like an equal. Yeah, that one scene you're referring to where Lugosi as Dr. Kessler is tending to what is it, a big, a big splinter in his wrist or something along those lines? It, it does feel like a throwaway scene. And if I didn't know any better, I almost would feel like it was just in there to show off the direction and the camera movement because of the way the camera is placed right behind the fire. And and the direction in this, the way the camera is placed and works. Yeah, sort of shot that, that Billy Wilder always used to rail against. Right. Whose point of view is that supposed to be? Santa Claus? <laughs> what he's saying, but, you know, as somebody talking about Mario Bava before, obviously I'm very into visual uh, filmmaking. And I, I think there's more moving camera work in this movie than there is in all of the other monogram movies combined. Uh, and that's down to Joseph H. Lewis, who directed this movie, a uh, very interesting director who, who had a very eclectic career. Obviously, I'm sure he was affected by the same schedule and the same lack of resources as uh, William Bodine or William Nye or, or uh, Bill Rosen or any of the other directors who made these movies, but it wasn't good enough for him to just sort of lock the camera down and get the basic coverage. He actually uh, shows a lot of care with the compositions. There's some very nice camera angles, and there's a lot of moving camera work in this movie. It's very unusual for a monogram movie. It's unusual, but it makes the movie feel more lush to me. It makes it feel uh, like it's a bigger budget production because it 
it's not easy to move a camera smoothly, especially a big bulky camera in the 1940s, that smoothly and, and make it work. My favorite shot in this entire thing, it's not a Lugosi uh, shot at all. It's when Clarence Muse, as Evans, discovers the body of the gardener. And the camera is slowly moving down, you know, going from the top of the table to the bottom of the table. It's just my favorite shot of this whole thing. And it's beautiful and it's lush and it makes the movie feel much more bigger budget than it has any right to feel. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it takes obviously it takes time. You have to lay down the tracks and you have to the crew has got to. I mean, I'm sure a lot of these uh, crew members were probably, you know, middle aged guys who didn't really care what they were doing. So they were probably pretty accustomed to just having a William Bodine type director come in and say, okay, well, let's, let's just do this as a master shot and maybe we'll get a little close up or something and let's just keep moving, you know, quick, 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 the whole way through, I think in this movie. And I, I suspect one of the reasons that Lugosi comes across as well as he does in this movie is, is also, he probably responded well to Joseph Lewis and understood that this was a director who actually uh, had a little bit of, of uh, talent and a little bit of vision. And when, when you're making movies like this, if you realize you're not in it alone, that can really help. I'm always reminded of a, a scene in Madhouse uh, with Vincent Price where there's a scene in the movie where he's, as this character, Paul Toombs, he's watching some of his old movies, and it's actually clips from old Roger Corman, Vincent Price, Edgar Allan Poe movies. And there's a scene with him and, and Basil Rathbone and, and uh, Price is watching this scene unfold and shows him a close-up and he says, ah, Basil, I had some real help on this one. That's that kind of notion of he wasn't in it alone. And I think that's the case here with this movie that Lugosi probably realized that for once he actually had some talented collaborators who actually cared about what they were doing. And so you get a more natural performance from him and you also get, again, this wonderful camera work i mean it's not super super elaborate camera work necessarily but it is very refreshing to watch a monogram movie and see actual dolly shots it's pretty spectacular and the blu-ray that just came out makes it look great i, I really enjoyed watching i watched it twice on on this blu-ray release that kino put out earlier this year just because i, I fell in love with Lugosi's performance even more, the way the camera works. Clarence Muse is fantastic. And you're right, he is the anti-Morland in this. He's just fantastic. There's not much to dislike about the movie. Even some of the more broad, ooh, spooky stuff is still, you know, it's still enjoyable. It's enjoyable. I mean, it is. <laughs> there's a scene. I, I couldn't help myself. There's a scene in the movie. Unfortunately, I did find myself laughing, and I don't think it was intended. But you know, poor Bela. At, at one point, he goes into one of these spells, and uh, he goes to kill the uh, cook or the maid or whatever she's supposed to be. And just the way he goes into the room, and he he takes <laughs> he takes off his dressing gown, and he's kind of making eyes at her. It looks like he's about to do something other than strangle. <laughs> that, that uh the way it's done but you know moments like that are kind of typical in most of the other monogram movies whereas here the little awkward moments there aren't that many of them you, you get a sense that actually probably joseph Lewis may, may have done a couple of takes he probably actually was concerned with the actors and tried to work with them the script is not always coherent it has to be said that the, the plot is a little muddy. It doesn't necessarily make sense, but it, it, he does something as similar to what Mario Bava would do later, which is just take something that maybe isn't all that great on the page and really elevate it visually. And if you can do that, if you can really create a sense of atmosphere and create interesting images and visuals, 
that's half the battle, and it really can make a, a film very engaging, even if at the end of the day you may say, well, oh, the story isn't all that great. That's all right. I mean, that's only part of a film everything else works and i think most of the other things in this movie do work and that's the reason why it probably is uh, overall it, it may well be the best of the monogram lugosi films of the 40s could some of that you think be because it was so early in the lugosi monogram collaboration i mean this was the first monogram he did well he actually did one in the 30s uh called the mysterious mr wong well right right but the big run you know that was like the nine movies yeah the nine films this was the first uh, he actually came to this one right after well i'm not sure if he'd done something in between but he'd come to it after having done devil bat erc which I believe if it's uh, even conceivable was even a lower budget outfit than monogram was. Yeah, I think so. I think some of that is probably a little bit more initial enthusiasm. Also the fact that Gosi was really entering into a kind of grim uh, period in his career in a certain sense. He was finding it harder and harder to get employment at the uh, bigger studios. Universal kind of turned their backs on him. I believe he really, was trying very hard for a period of time to get cast as a wolf man, for example. And he kind of was. Uh, he, he plays the uh, gypsy that actually you know, creates all of Larry Tell. <laughs> right, right. But it's a, it's a one and done scene, you know, and it's a very well played scene, I might add. I think it's a very beautiful little performance from him, but he's only in it for maybe, you know, what, five minutes? He, at, at some point, apparently really did try to get that part which would have been completely ludicrous. I think we can all admit that the script would have had to have been radically rewritten, but he wasn't really getting leading roles at Universal anymore when he would get top billing in movies like, uh, uh, well, he didn't even get top billing in The Black Cat. Basil Rathbone would have gotten billing over him for sure, but Night Monster, for example, I mean, he just plays the butler on the sidelines. He doesn't have anything to do. He only did a handful of movies for Universal in the 40s, and, and most of the other studios didn't really want to use him. So this is really at the beginning of his period of being kind of the king of, of Poverty Row horror films. It's really a shame. I mean, it's only a couple of years after Son of Frankenstein with Igor, one of his arguably best performances. And and here we... Between. Yeah. Right in between the two performances is Igor, because he would come back after this to do uh, goes to Frankenstein, which I think is immensely underrated as a movie, a very good film, and I think he's great in it. It's one of those things, if, if horror films weren't so sort of ghettoized and uh, underrated typically, uh, he should have been nominated for an Oscar for that back in 1939. He really was a scene stealer in that movie. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was. It's a great performance. It really is. I mean, I have a hard time finding any Lugosi film boring, even if he's only in it for a few minutes. I mean, I'm, I'm just captivated by him. Did you listen to the commentary track at all on the Blu-ray? I didn't actually get a chance to listen to it. I'm familiar with Tom Weaver's other commentary tracks. He is sometimes a little unduly dismissive of, of these films, I feel like, at times, although he does know what he's talking about. Oh, yeah wonderful book called uh, Poverty Row Horrors. Mm -hmm. He does like these movies. I don't think it's a bad thing to point out their shortcomings. I mean, no, they're not necessarily great art, but they're great entertainment. Uh, Gary Rhodes is on the commentary. Yes, he's fantastic. I'm a huge fan of Gary Rhodes. He's a, he's a very nice guy. I've had some contact with him, and he's always been supportive of my own work. And uh, He knows what he's talking about when it comes to Lugosi. He's really been dispelling a lot of the common myths about, uh, about Lugosi that uh, get repeated again and again. 
on various different articles and books and so forth. So there's, I'm sure there's a lot of good information on that track. I, I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but I will. Well, I was going to say it starts out sounding like Tom is being a little dismissive of the movie. And I was like, wait a minute. I mean, I've met Tom at Monster Bash. You know, I've seen him on stage present. So I know he's kind of got this this kind of. I don't know, character that he does a little bit, but once you get into the commentary, you can tell he's just having as much fun as I am watching the movie, talking about the movie. And he starts going through what Lugosi was doing in 39 versus 41. And I, I just, I recommend the commentary track. Larry Blameyer of all people turn up on the commentary track as well, talking about old dark house movies, which I found fascinating to bring him in. The guy who did Lost Skeleton of Cadavera as part of the commentary track, which was, again, wasn't expecting that. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's one of those uh, things where you know between various different uh, projects and everything else, the movie kind of sat for a little while before I got around to it, and uh, I just didn't get a chance to listen to it yet. But I'm sure it'll be interesting. I mean, I'll, I'll say this much: even when I think he's being a little too snarky, at least I don't find his tracks to be boring ever. Oh no, he knows his stuff. He knows his stuff. Yeah, he keeps it lively, and it, it never turns into like one of those really dry lecture type of of track so and it's only an hour long movie so it's not like it'll take up much of my time that's how i was able to watch it twice before we recorded so yeah because <laughs> you know movies is they're they're mercifully brief even if they're not always great they don't they don't overstay their welcome and that was kind of by design wasn't it so they could sell them as double features as part of a b movie as something else maybe yeah absolutely I and mean, even the universal films which were comparatively kind of uh, big budget, uh, even though Universal was kind of a minor studio compared to someplace like MGM or Fox. Their horror films typically only ran about an hour, hour and ten minutes or so. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, Joseph Lewis ended up doing a uh, Universal horror film after this, uh, more of a borderline horror film called Mad Doctor Market Street. And that movie's just barely an hour. So, yeah, a lot of these movies were designed to go out on double bills, maybe even triple bills. And so... The shorter, the better in some respects. Although, you know, again, watch a lot of movies today. A lot of them are just far too long. I guess that's kind of, uh, you know, designed in a way to give people a sense that they're getting their money's worth because everything's so expensive these days. But uh, sometimes short is better with, with a lot of these movies. And I, I don't think uh, a movie like Invisible Ghost would have benefited much from another half hour, for example. I think it's about the right length at about, about 62, 63 minutes or so. Yeah, I think so, too. We were talking earlier about Manos and the, and the extra padding in there with the tickle fight, which I'm all about a good tickle fight, but it, it, it does extend the film a little bit longer than it probably needed to be. And I think if they tried to put more of that in Invisible Ghost, what would they, would they have done? Just have another murder or something? I don't know. It just felt... I felt like the pacing was perfect, especially up to the execution. I mean, that pacing is just spot on, sparkly good. Absolutely. And I think it, it has a much more classy kind of machine to it compared to the other monogram movies. I mean, it really does feel like it was made by people who were trying to elevate the material, which is great. I mean, because again, very often you get a lot of these kind of uh, journeyman hack directors who really don't care. It's just another job. And so let's get it over with as quickly as possible. They're not going to pay me anymore if I go to the trouble of setting up dolly shots, for example. So uh, that's the difference between that and, and a relatively young uh, director like uh, Joseph Lewis, who would have only been in his 30s at the time, as opposed to a sort of middle-aged uh, director who's probably on his way out and was maybe thinking about retiring and, and moving to Florida and playing golf within a few years. So 
this movie has an energy and a pace that's that's quite good. Um, it doesn't feel drawn out. I mean, I mentioned before the little scene with Clarence Muse. It is kind of a pointless scene in a way, but I think it's also it's good character material, and that's something you really don't get a lot of in movies like this. Yeah, it's an important scene. I mean, it does feel like, oh, this has nothing to do with the plot, but it has everything to do with the character of Dr. Kessler. Absolutely. And it's, it's important. It should be there, and but it's it's the sort of thing you could very often see even a, a producer saying, you know, what are you wasting time with this for? Let's just tear this out of the script. You're not going to film this. Mm, I, it does nothing to advance the plot, but it does a lot to establish those characters. You know, just as an aside, you mentioned the script. I want to mention the screenwriters. It was Al and Helen Martin, who were both African-American, I believe. I know Helen Martin was for sure African-American. I'm looking at a picture of her right now. She did a lot of acting uh, on television up to the 2000s. And she's actually the actress, the character that Tyler Perry based Medea on. So <laughs> crazy connection, you know, to <laughs> this film. And I know that Al Martin wrote uh, the Joseph Lewis movie for Universal. I mentioned Mad Doctor of Market Street, so uh, yeah, that's a little connection there, but I didn't, I didn't realize there was a Medea connection. And I wonder if because they were African-American, if maybe that's why the character of Evans is treated a little differently. Well, now see, I wasn't aware of that, so that's very possible too. I, I don't know. True that Clarence Muse, who had a very interesting career, I've seen it said that he was the first African-American to star in a movie. Uh, he was also he was a songwriter. You can actually hear one of his songs, although I can't remember the title off the top of my head, on the soundtrack to Martin Scorsese's movie Casino. Oh, wow. It's a song that he wrote. Uh, he wrote apparently quite a few songs. Uh, he even acted and directed on Broadway, and he was very much into the civil rights thing. Or it was fashionable. Mm -hmm. uh, very much for, for equal rights and so forth. And apparently Bela Lugosi was uh, an ally in that sense. Like the way that blacks were being stereotyped in movies, so he had actually appeared with Bela back in 1932 in White Zombie. He's the coach driver that, at the beginning of the movie, who warns the uh, young couple about uh, the zombies and everything. And, and there again, he doesn't play the sort of stereotypical comic uh, black servant character. He actually has a little bit of dignity to him. So. Um, yeah, I and mean, if the fact that if they were uh, African-Americans themselves who wrote the script, that may have contributed to it. But I'm sure that also Clarence Muse probably would not have accepted certain things in the same way that like uh, uh, Manton Moreland had done. Although I like Manton. Oh, I was about to say that. We're not saying we don't. I mean, I think Manton Moreland is, yeah. yeah. You have to put it into the time. I mean, you can't really apply contemporary uh, sort of um, – mores onto movies from the 40s and so forth it's it's an exercise of futility you have to understand that this was something that was accepted maybe it wasn't very nice and maybe it wasn't very sensitive but by the same token it also has to be said that it was providing uh, certain actors with work and it was enabling them to pay the bills so there is something to be said for that too yeah yeah but clarence muse had a, a great deal of dignity you can just see it He's nobody's fool. I'm, I'm going to dig into my history, pull, in, pull into my past a little bit as, as the former zombie movie podcaster and say that Clarence Muse, I believe, is the first person in a feature-length film to utter the word zombie. So, White Zombie being the first, you know, right there at the very beginning of the film. So. He yells it out. He sees them coming over the hill. As a matter of fact, it's one of the best scenes in the movie, I think. I agree. 
the introduction of Bela Lugosi's character as well. And so, yeah. But again, he's not playing it as the kind of comic scared servant thing. He actually has a certain gravity to him that, uh, I, you know, I always responded to. I mean, he's one of those guys, every time I see him in movies, I'm always happy to see him. He even had a little role in Alfred Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt. Mm-hmm. It's a Francis Ford Coppola production, Black Stallion, which came out right around the time he died in 1979. So he was busy all the way up to the end. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he's fantastic. And I love watching him in this. Polly Ann Young plays the young the daughter, you know, uh, what's her name? Virginia Kessler. This was her last film. Yeah. Um, she's apparently the sister of Loretta young. Yeah. But, you know, doesn't look as though she had a, uh, terribly significant career, although she had been uh, in movies since around the, uh, 19 teens, um, that's a circa 1917 or so. She didn't die until 1997, so presumably she got married and just decided to settle down and have a family. That would be my assumption. I think it's unfortunate because I did like her in this, and I'm going to go back and, and check out a number of her other films. I'd like to see her in other things just to see how she she does, because I thought she was great in this. And even though I feel like both her and her father kind of get over the death of Ralph a little quickly, a little more quickly for me than, than I would have liked, uh, I think at one point, though, don't they say it's been months, so maybe it's it's understandable. Up until that point, I do feel like she's doing a great job. The real villain in this movie, in a way, is the script, not to be this. Dis- <laughs> there is some confusion in this movie about uh, time and also about uh, logic. I- I'm not 100% clear, and I'm not sure if you are either. It is, uh, is the wife supposed to be some kind of a witch or something? Uh, who exerts some sort of evil influence over over Kessler, or is he just psychotic or what? I, but, you know, at the end of the movie, uh, anybody that's listening to this, I'm sure has seen the movie, but um, he basically goes into one of his spells, and, and he's in the process of throttling the police officer, and it's only the fact that she drops dead in another room, which he couldn't possibly be aware of, that makes him snap out of his spell. So, so what the hell is that? Awesome? <laughs> I'm not 100% clear on that. I don't think the movie is very... We talked about this before with The Ape Man, that you had the, uh, James Brewster's uh, sister as this um, spiritualist, a ghost hunter, or something like that. Why? It doesn't... <laughs> yeah. They got something in that they were going to do something with, and then they kind of forgot about it. Um, and I think <laughs> it feels like they were not 100% sure. But then again given how quickly these things come together and so forth, uh, it's not necessarily uh, hugely surprising. So the, the script does have its problems. That's uh, just being honest about it. But it's not like we want to put a bunch more in to explain it because like you, like we've been talking about, this is about the perfect length. So, you know, it's, just, it's this thin line that you're kind of walking. You don't want to pad it with over explaining what's going on, but a little bit more would have been nice. Maybe just, I don't know, something, yeah. Necessarily want to have like the psycho ending where they wheel out Simon Oakland to, to explain everything for everybody in the back row. Um, that right. Misstep, but at the same time, there is something here that's a little bit confusing. But, you know, to talk about the speed with which these things are done, uh, this movie was made in March of 1941 and it came out of April of the same year. <laughs> so, um, there you go. 
sure that they didn't sweat uh, long hours, uh, or they probably did put long hours, but not over a long period of time in terms of writing the script. It was probably just you know, written on the back of a napkin as a concept, and then uh, the producer basically said, "Yeah, let's let's do it. It's a beautiful story. Let's let's film it." Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we are talking about Sam Katzman, so yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. Um, Quality was not his middle name, but he knew how to get these things put together and, and put in the theaters. And these things did play theaters. I mean, they didn't, you know, this is well before the days of direct video and so forth. A movie like Invisible Ghost would nowadays go straight to uh, on demand. <laughs> but, oh, sure. Yeah. You might get a running on Sci Fi Channel and then that's about it. Yeah. But back then, these movies did go into theaters. I mean, the, the movie that Lugosi did before this, the first of his sort of poverty row horror movies, Devil Bat. That had been shot in October of 1940, and that was released in December of 1940. So, again, these things were just, you know, it was a well-oiled machine. They got them shot and edited and spliced together and put on theater screens really quick. And I wonder how much of that was beneficial to Bela, knowing that while he was also doing the films, he was also doing stage work and and just really just working. You know, for a guy who unfortunately didn't get treated very well by Universal, man, he was working a lot. He might not have been paid a lot, but he was on stage. He was doing little bits here and there. And yeah, we mentioned Rhodes earlier. I just finished his book, uh, Bela Lugosi, in person fantastic read and and so eye-opening about that part of Lugosi's career the stage part of Lugosi's career I knew nothing about other than knowing he played Dracula a lot you know right there's this misconception that he kind of sat on his thumbs a long time uh, maybe because there weren't a lot of film credits coming around but no he was actually very busy I mean yeah a lot of it may have been sort of regional theater kind of roadshow things that weren't you know Boris Karloff was doing Arsenic and Old Lace on Broadway uh, whereas Lugosi was doing it in the sticks. But still, I mean, he was working, and uh, he was getting good reviews for it. He was playing the same part, the uh, the murderer, Jonathan Brewster. You know, some of the reviews indicate that he, he may even have been a little bit better than Karloff, although I, I don't know. Uh, unfortunately, we'll never get a chance to, to really see that, although there is at least a, a TV version of uh, Arsenic and Old Lace with Karloff that has uh, been preserved. But, uh, you know, even that doesn't really give you an idea of what it would have been like to see them live on, on stage. Uh, Lugosi was, was always working. I mean, he was trying very hard to get into the good graces of the bigger studios. And as, as we talked about last time we were talking about Lugosi, you know, there, there is a kind of pitiful quality to, to some of his letters and so forth and, and correspondence that survive, where there is this real sense of a man of, of enormous pride. He really was sort of begging here and there i'll work cheap you know and that that was kind of what hurt him early on with dracula they were looking at um, conrad veit was going to play dracula and uh, he would have been magnificent but uh, he decided to go back to germany and so there was this search who's going to play the part they didn't even think of lugosi even though he was so successful on broadway with it. Uh, he was so desperate for that part he basically allowed himself to be put over a barrel that sort of set the tone for him for the rest of his career in many respects. I mean, he, he was not being treated very, very well by the bigger studios. Even when he did uh, the body snatcher for Val Luton, Val Luton didn't want him. Uh, Val Luton didn't want Karloff either at the, at the start, although he ended up really loving Karloff. Uh, and the feeling was mutual. But Lugosi, by that point, by most accounts, really wasn't at his best. I know Robert Wise said that he seemed to be a little bit out of it, and that was probably around the time that uh, a lot of the issues with the morphine and so forth, uh, drinking, 
also were probably wreaking havoc with him. So kind of a sad story, but he was working. And that's that's a key thing. I think for somebody like that, that was the important thing was to just keep. You know, I almost wonder, too, you know, I, I read stories about people who would have an opportunity to see Lugosi on stage and then afterwards go behind the theater and, and meet him and spend time with him and chat with him. And I can't imagine that that was doable on Broadway with Karloff. So, you know, good for the fans, if nothing else, to have that opportunity to maybe have a, you know, a, a deeper connection with Lugosi because he got to go meet him backstage and, and catch him smoking on a cigar or something, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And you know? a lot of people who did, apparently a lot of kids uh, went backstage and, and he was accessible. Not to say that Karloff was not an accessible man, but just by nature of the fact, you know, a Broadway venue, uh, probably a lot tighter security, probably a lot tighter you know, <laughs> right. headlines and so forth. Whereas you're making, you know, you're doing an appearance in Altoona, Pennsylvania or something, you can probably get backstage pretty easy and ask people to go see for an autograph. And I'm sure he loved the attention. You know, he, he loved, like anybody, he wanted to feel wanted. And uh, that was validation for him. I wish I could remember the name of it, but I, I did read a biography. Uh, about Lugosi and the biographer does talk about having an encounter with Lugosi in that way that that's his first experience. And, and he opens the book with that and just, man, to have been alive to be able to meet these people. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, <sighs> I, I, I think I was born you know, 30, 40 years too late. <laughs> you know, I tell people that myself, but then if I didn't, you know, we wouldn't have podcasting and an opportunity to, to chat about this stuff on Blu-ray. So I, I, I don't know if it's a trade, a good trade off or not, but we're, I get maybe in a way we're keeping this stuff alive a little bit or helping to. It's not single. <laughs> we keep it alive, uh, which is, is good in its own way. So. Well, especially a movie like this. I mean, I, I really dig this one. And, you know, we, we've danced around it. The, the story isn't overly complex, except where it probably didn't need to be. If this movie had been made in the 60s, it would have been Vincent Price. It would have been one of his dead wife movies. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Over the death of his of his wife. And he has the big portrait of her in the hallway. And, you know, he's all sunny and, and optimistic and everything. But then there's that, that hallway with the black curtains. And he goes in there and he, he smokes opium or whatever. Mourns <laughs> over the death. <laughs> Uh, so here it's Lugosi and he's doing it on Poverty Row and, and, uh, and it is the kind of, you know, although at first, um, we're being told basically, you know, she went off with a, a lover. So presumably she's alive, but some people seem to think that she's dead. We're not a hundred percent sure. And it turns out she's actually in the garage, <laughs> she's right. garage. <laughs> which apparently Bill Lugosi never needs to go into the garage. So I guess if you have Clarence Muse on your payroll, you don't need to go into the garage and you can keep <laughs> a, a lost, uh, a presumed dead wife actually living out there in a cot. <laughs> it, the, the logic kind of collapses when you think about it too much. It's simple and straightforward for the most part. Um, but then, like I said, after a certain point, there is this real confusion, and, and I think it is absolutely confusion about what exactly is she. Is is she the villain of the movie? Is he the villain of the movie? Uh, I'm more inclined to think that she is, uh, but um, basically, at the end of the day, he is a murderer, and uh, it, it's that concept of, is he trying to kill her? Uh, every time that he kills, does he think that he's killing her? Is is this what? She, is this some sort of elaborate revenge that she has going on with him? I'm not a hundred percent clear because the movie really does get a little bit muddy in the last half. It does, and 
you know, what, what power does she really have over him? And was he aware that she had a lover and now he's killing these other people as, as fill-ins for people who may or may not have been the person she ran off with? I don't know. It's, it's not clear. It, it's a mystery for the sake of being a mystery. Yeah. I mean, you know, but it's okay. It's one of those movies. Uh, you're like, so you first saw it probably either on, you know, t- two o'clock in the morning on the nostalgia channel or something, or you found a copy of it on VHS and have been back in the, back in the day. And right. Yeah. Delivered exactly what it was supposed to deliver. It's, it's an hour of Bela Lugosi and that's good enough. If you're a fan, that's, that's all you need. The monogram films, obviously they were staples in the bargain bin because they were in public domain. All of those films that I saw growing up, only a couple of them that didn't seem to make the rounds like Voodoo Man and uh, Return of the Ape Man, for whatever reason, they didn't seem to show up on on VHS, at least not in my neck of the woods. Even those sort of, um, they called the dead end kids at that point, they were the Bowery Boys and they were the dead end kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ghosts Run Wild and uh, Spooks on the Loose. I mean, God. God almighty, I had to watch those again recently for a project, a book project, and I found them very hard to get through. But when I saw them as a kid, you know, oh, it was fine. You know, I mean, even though they probably don't work now because they're not Lugosi movies. He's just kind of on the sidelines. He's, he's the mysterious guy in the cape that turns out to be a Nazi or whatever. Uh, <laughs> all Nazis wear capes, apparently. So it well, it's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't have a monocle. So that's, that's disappointing, but uh, tough movies to sit through. But these ones here, like The Invisible Ghost, uh, they hold up because it really is available front and center. And that's that's what makes them good uh, entertainment. But also, it's, again, just to hammer that point home, that this is also, again, an uncommonly well-directed one and uncommonly uh, thoughtful in terms of its presentation. You do kind of get that sense that maybe Joseph Lewis read the script and said, this doesn't make any sense. I don't have time to fix it. Let's just perk it up a little bit with some good camera work and hopefully nobody will think about it. And if you only saw the movie once in 1941, uh, you went to the movies and you saw it as part of a double bill, maybe you didn't think too much about it. It's different now with video and everything. We can look at these things and kind of pick them apart more than we would have done back in the day. You know, and I've talked about this a few times on the show when we bring when we bring somebody on to talk about a sequel, uh, Son of Frankenstein, Ghost of Frankenstein, the Planet of the Apes movies. Well, I guess the Planet of the Apes movies maybe a little bit less so, but when you have these movies that are sequels to another and they make certain changes or they do certain things to the film, it's not like somebody watched it on VHS and then went out and saw the movie, you know. Uh, it's not like people are going to remember that Igor had terrible teeth in Son of Frankenstein, but suddenly they're good in Ghost, you know. Chemova. Oh, is that how that worked? Okay. <laughs> the dentist. Yeah. I, I see. I see. You know, so it's not like you're going to see, you know, that level of, um, no. they, they played in the movie theater and that was it. And then I would imagine horror hosts probably had a field day with Invisible Ghost or any of the monogram pictures because they're so short. You can do so much with that. Well, you had a lot of filler there with, with, uh, host material. I mean, the guy that was on around here in my neck of the woods was, uh, Bill Cardelli. Uh, uh last year and he was rest in peace sir rest in peace great guy i got to meet him a couple years before he passed i was actually at the monster bash um he was supposed to be there for one final thing oh no he went downhill and unfortunately i didn't get the chance to see him again but i did see him a couple years before and he was so nice and yeah he ran he ran movies like this he ran 
Hammer films and the AIP films and so forth. And uh, uh, that's that's an era that I miss so very much. Although there are some of them still around. There, there was at least a guy named uh, Wolfman Mac. I think he was out of Detroit who, who uh, had a thing called Chiller Drive-In. I used to watch. Uh, but then they dropped it off of my cable and now we have Sven and He's on Saturday nights. Mm-hmm. Sven only runs uh, Universal films. Yeah, they've got a very specific deal with MeTV and the movies that they can run. Typically Universal distributed films. So every once in a while you get like a Brides of Dracula in there. and They, they have the Hammer films that uh, Universal has the rights to, but mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the old um, 30s and 40s, even 50s movies, which is fine and, and, and that's okay. And it's nice to have something like that on. But I, I miss the old days, as I'm sure most of us do. Uh, the old horror hosts uh, like Bill Cardilli staying up and watching these movies at a time when you stayed up till two in the morning to see the invisible ghost because you didn't know when it was going to run again. Right. There was a greater sense of uh, anticipation at that time, but you brought up a very good point too about the practical side of it, which is when these movies were made, they were probably, they were basically designed to be seen once and that was going to be it. So the continuity you might have several years in between. I mean, Frankenstein was made in 1931. Then you have Frank, Bride of Frankenstein in 35. Same director, James Whale, but he just he didn't really care about you know maintaining a specific continuity. So it seems to take place in its own different time frame. And then several years after that, you have uh, The Son of Frankenstein. And there again, thing kind of is is jumbled around yet again and then a few years later it goes to frankenstein and it's just it, there was never any real continuity you can see that especially even in the hammer frankenstein films oh yeah trying to make any even a time really makes sense because the the last film uh frankenstein and the monster from hell seems to be set well before the other movies it seems to be set much much further back uh, whereas the one that came before it, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, looks as though it's set in the early 1900s. So good luck with that. I, I yeah. <laughs> really thinking about stuff. I think the only two that really match up are the first two, and then after that, you're just all over the map. Well, they are, and it really it almost feels like um, the Baron Frankenstein character is a different character in different films. Uh, he's, he's a complete and utter monster in the first film. He's much more sympathetic in the second film though the continuity is at least there to connect those two movies up. Then you get um, Evil Frankenstein, where he's like a hero. Uh, and and uh, Frankenstein created a woman. He's kind of sympathetic there. But then he's a monster again, and Frankenstein must be destroyed. And, and he's kind of in between the two extremes and monster from hell. So it's like, it doesn't really add up. Uh, when people talk about you know this great character arc in, in the series, I don't really see that because... It seems to me that the different writers had their own different takes on the character, and that's that's what you get. At that time, when these movies were being made, and, and that's the overall point, there's no um, real specific continuity, simply because I don't think anybody really thought that anybody would notice. Right. Well, the Universal Mummy movies. <laughs> Geographically and timeline-wise, they are, yeah, there's no way to make those work. Well, you know, the, I think the mummy's hand is supposed to be set in 1940. I guess right. It means that the mummy's tomb is set around 1970. Right. <laughs> and so on, and so on. And then Karis goes into a, uh, a swamp in the mummy's ghost, which I don't know how many swamps there are in in New England, but let's let's run with it for a moment. Uh, but then he he emerges in Louisiana. So <laughs> really big swamp. Really big swamp. <laughs> 
take swamp. There's been some post-apocalyptic disaster, and the world's covered in swamps. I guess <laughs> we said around 1980. Or so, so yeah. Even though World War II apparently is still going on, uh, World War II is specifically mentioned. In fact, yeah, John Banning is called up for his draft service in the Mummy's Tomb. So they must have really thought that World War II was going to keep going into the 70s, man. Uh, these movies, you know, we look at things like that, and you know, I just have to kind of chuckle and laugh, and it doesn't take anything away from the movies for me. You know, you just have to put yourself in a different mindset, I think, when you watch them. You know, I've always said that I was so great that I was raised the way that I was, that I saw old movies when I was little, before my kind of uh, school friends and everybody else started to drill it into me that old stuff is boring. So many younger people just don't want to know anything about black and white. and uh, they, they just think of it as they're missing something. And I'm so glad I don't think like that. My God, you know, I grew up watching Karloff, Josie, John Carradine, all these different people, they were the people that I looked up to and admired. Most people in my uh, grade school looking up to people like Arnold Schwarzenegger, Bruce Willis, and I'm talking about Christopher Lee and and Basil Rathbone, so it's a very different sort of a thing for me. (laughs) I have very distinct memories, and I actually was just visiting my mother. Listeners know why I was in Arizona with my mother, Um, but I was just recently visiting my mother, and she has a habit of saving a lot of stuff from, from when we were kids, and I was going through a trunk. I was hoping... I was really hoping I could have found this, and and I didn't. But I have very distinct memories in grade school, writing a, a paper about Halloween. A paper being like maybe like a page and a half, in which I, as a little smartass second grader, or whatever, wrote that people who dress up like princesses and pirates and all that were ruining Halloween because Halloween's supposed to be about Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff and Lon Chaney Jr. and Sr. Couldn't find that, but I did find a handful of other things that I apparently was obsessed with monsters as a kid. You know, uh, the, the school journal I called my spooky journal and I had drawings of skeletons and Frankenstein in it and all that. Yeah. You and I had very similar uh, childhoods from the sounds of it. And I, I can realize that probably getting off topic here, but if you'll indulge me for a moment, I can remember um, being in uh, grade school. Even then, I thought it was funny. Uh, they had us do drawings and little stories of what we wanted to be when we grew up. I don't remember what I picked, but I remember one of the kids in there drew a picture of Freddy Krueger. And <laughs> I, I thought, you want to be a child molesting uh, child murderer? <laughs> They didn't think about that. They just thought he was cool because by that point the sequels had come. And he was this sort of, you know, uh, uh, cool and, and funny, always ready with a quip. He was like the James Bond of, of monsters or something. And so it was it's just funny, you know, how, how kids can in a certain way really uh, latch on. Well, because they, there is that feeling of the outsider. If you get that, especially like with the Wolfman, the Lon Chaney uh, Wolfman. A lot of kids really relate to that, and also to the Frankenstein monster, that sense of being an outsider, being awkward, and so forth. So, Lugosi never played the awkward outsider. He was kind of the outsider we wished to be like, because he was smooth, and he was continental, and he was very urbane and sophisticated, and the women liked him, and so forth. So, that was a little bit different with him. Yeah, and to bring it back to the Invisible Ghost, I mean, he does have that vibe in this, but... It doesn't feel out of place. And and that's one of the things that I appreciate about Invisible Ghost is that a lot of times, and I think we talked about this when we talked about the ape man, he's got this such a distinct accent. 
how hard would it have been to change the name from Brewster to something a little bit more appropriate for a character who clearly is not born in this country? Right. Talk about that. And, and last time, you know, it was, uh, you know, yeah, James Brewster and that or Paul Carruthers and, and the devil bat. I mean, it's like, well, as I said last time, it's like they wrote it hoping to get Karloff or something. Right. He could have done that. But I wasn't distracted by that in Invisible Ghosts. That didn't bother me for whatever reason. And I don't know if it's because Lugosi was just a better actor or what, but it just didn't bother me as much. Do they give his first name? I can't remember. Charles. It's Charles. <laughs> it's just Chuck, you know, Chuck Kessler, you know. Kessler's got kind of, you know, you can run with that a little bit. You can say, yeah, that's that's okay. I mean, I forgot that his first name was Charles. It works okay because, again, he, he is given an opportunity to really just play it straight. He's not being encouraged to act mysterious all the time. You mentioned the scenes with him and, and Pollyanne Young. There's a really nice one where she tells him of, of the fact that she thinks that Ralph is going to propose to her. And very often what you get in these movies is the father is very much opposed. He's not good enough for you. And, you know, over my dead body, you'll marry. But he's like, oh, that's wonderful. Oh, he's such a nice young man. I mean, you don't get to see him do stuff like that very often. That's one of the things that I really like. And it, it does make this movie kind of special, that even though it's a little cheap movie and it doesn't necessarily make a hell of a lot of sense if you think about it too much, it's just nice to get to see him play that kind of a role. Especially during the first half of the film. Like I said before, the execution, there is so much there where he's the loving father. He's the, the loving town doctor. And you don't get to see that very much. You know, you get to things like Devil Bat, which I love. I think the Devil Bat is one of the best lower-budget Lugosi films out there, but you don't get that range. And Just like I said, that movie starts off with this call, and it says, you know, the, the, the <laughs> I can't remember off the top of my head, but kindly and beloved James, uh, I say it again, James Brewster, I did that last time, it's Paul Carruthers. <laughs> and he is, um, he's a creep. <laughs> you know, rub it on the tender part of your neck. Goodbye. Every time somebody leaves, he knows he's not going to see them again. Goodbye. Right. I'm be seeing you again. He, it's great. I mean, I love that movie, and that's one of those movies I first saw as a kid. You know, from a video uh, bin. You know, it was released by every low budget label in, in the country. It's great stuff. You can tell that he's being encouraged to play it very melodramatic the whole way through. Here, he's he's allowed to be a little bit natural, a little bit more relaxed. Yes, as I mentioned, some of the, the moments where he's required to go into the trance and he kind of turns into a kind of sleepwalker type thing, is some of that maybe looks a little bit unintentionally funny. Uh, just the way he whips off his, his dressing gown and leers at that girl in the bed, it just, I couldn't help it, it made me giggle. But that's not to be disrespectful. It's just, you know, it's just the way it comes across because that's how it's staged. Um, that's probably a, a mistake on Joseph Lewis's part more than anything else. Uh, it, it comes across a little bit questionable. But to see him just interacting with people in a normal way and, and talking like a regular human being, and you can believe that this is a guy who maybe has held down a job, has raised a family, and is just a decent guy. You don't get much of that with Lugosi, unfortunately. So that's one of the things that makes this movie really stand out. You even feel bad for him when you realize why he's sitting at a table by himself you know, at dinner. You feel bad for the guy. And I can't think of too many Lugosi, quote-unquote, horror movies where you actually sympathize for him. No, that's true. You know? Actually, when I watched that, that film, it reminded me very much of the stories you hear about Peter Cushing, 
Yes. Who who was devastated after his wife died. And I suspect part of the reason that we didn't see him in a lot of movies, even after um, Star Wars, for example, before he was taken ill and had reached a point where he couldn't, he was just uninsurable. I think a lot of people probably just thought there was something wrong with him because he would talk so much about his dead wife and he would go into his trailer and, and talk to his dead wife. I suspect a lot of people probably thought, yeah, he's, he must have a screw loose or something, um, which is very sad. But a lot of people who haven't been through that kind of loss and that kind of grief don't really understand how that can affect people. And so when I, when I watched that film, I thought, well, that's that kind of reminds me a little bit of that. You do feel sorry for him. He doesn't come across like he's insane. He doesn't come across like he's got a screw loose. He just comes across as a man who's, who's lost something very, very important. And uh, again, it's a, it, the script is a disservice to him in a way because that angle is a little muddled because we're not 100% clear at the end of the day. You know, did he really truly love her, or is he just the spurned husband? I mean, I'm sure anybody who's ever been in a relationship where somebody's been unfaithful to them can understand the emotions that that causes. But uh, at the same time, you know, what is the precise nature of the relationship there is a little bit unclear. But I think in terms of how he plays it, he comes across with enormous sympathy the whole way through. So if nothing else, listeners, if you have, so first of all, we spoiled it all, but <laughs> pretty much, but if you haven't seen invisible ghosts at this point, I, I highly recommend it. And I recommend the Blu-ray. I think the story is, you know, a little muddy there here and there, but, you get the performances, you get some great camera work. There's a lot of interestingly placed cameras in, in a lot of the scenes. You know, we talk about the fire. We talk about finding the, the gardener's body. There's a lot of shots through a window during rain at night that are very, I mean, classic old dark house style type shots. And I love them. Well, not only that, you mentioned the Blu-ray. I, I have to tell you the, the, the quality on it for the most part, there's some very dupey sections uh, where they clearly had to cut in material from a different print, but especially the the first ten minutes or so, and various other points in the movie are incredibly uh, crystal clear and very very beautiful. I mean, comparable really to what Universal did with some of their classic horror films of the '30s. Uh, the detail, the level of detail and clarity is really amazing, and the print is very very clean in in a lot of it. Uh, there is some scenes that are clearly from an inferior source and they look kind of beat up. But this is one of those movies you saw it back in the 80s on VHS. It was blurry and it, it just looked wretched. I'd love to see all of these monogram horror films that he did restored like that. They did do uh, The Devil Bats, which is a PRC film, but nevertheless, they did put that out. And uh, that looks great too. And also The Death Kiss from the 1930s, which I think is... One of those movies that I know it disappointed me as a kid because it's not really a Lugosi movie per se, but uh, it's a really neat little murder mystery. And if you like movies from the 30s and, and murder mysteries and behind the scenes glimpses of film production, too, uh, yeah, start searching out. So I was really, really impressed with The Invisible Ghost. I wondered how how good it would look. It gives me hope for something like The Ape Man or um, Black Dragons or power at midnight or corpse vanishes or whatever right something can clean those movies up too I, i'd buy them for a monogram picture a studio notorious for being cheap to have prints survive to the era of blu-ray just blows my mind and there are a few places here and there especially at the real changes that seem a little sketchy at points but 
you know, this is as good as this movie's ever looked. And you mentioned the death kiss. That blue, I cannot speak highly enough about that film and that Blu-ray. That is amazing. I think it's a criminally underrated film. I know it's not a Lugosi picture, quote unquote, but man, that movie's good. That's the thing. I mean, I remember seeing it in the eighties. There was a there was a channel called the Nostalgia Channel that used to run all these creaky public domain movies, and I saw it on. I was so excited because Lugosi and David Banner's from Dracula. It's going to be great. I was very disappointed at the time because first of all, it's not really a horror film, and second of all, Lugosi isn't in it all that much. But if you can get past that and understand it for what it is, it's really a neat little movie. And I love the behind-the-scenes glimpses of you know, sort of film production in the 1930s. Uh, not how realistic it is, but it's really, I think it's kind of neat. And uh, again, you get uh, Ben Lugosi, David Manners, and Edward Van Sloan all reunited from, from Dracula. It's a very enjoyable movie. And uh, yeah, absolutely. If you haven't checked that one out, it's well worth seeking out and the... Uh, quality on that blu-ray is, is quite good i haven't had the chance to watch it yet but have you seen voodoo man on blu-ray do you know how that holds up uh yeah i have watched it um the, the transfer is is pretty good i mean it's i suspect they probably could have taken a little more time and care with it but it's it's a label called olive that really doesn't seem to lavish a lot of time on on their releases they pretty much put out what they have and there's no extras or anything like that but right you know, a monogram movie from the 40s that looks very nice. The print is in good shape. It's a, a nice-looking transfer. And uh, what a demented movie that is. Uh, George Zuko and, and John Carradine, both in that uh, really probably at their least dignified that they ever had to be on. <laughs> the ghost, he gets to keep his dignity intact. He, he looks great in it, too, with the, the mustache and goatee combination. He should have wore that more often. Yeah, right? He looked good with that. I mean, he, he comes across well in that movie. John Carradine, oh my God. Well, I mean, you know, Carradine basically thought that might be his last movie and that he was going to, you know, after that he was going to have his uh, traveling band of Shakespearean actors and he was just going to live that lifestyle. But it didn't work out that way, as we know. <laughs> um, he ended up working up until well, until the end. And there was a lot worse in store than that. <laughs> <laughs> He apparently, I think he said at one point it was his worst movie. Uh, well, I'd have to just really. He try. I don't know when he said it. He might have said it in the fifties, but I'm not sure. Uh, at a time when he was still capable of getting hired by like Demille to do something like the Ten Commandments, for example. But <laughs> he had some real dispiriting uh, movies in his future. But hey, I just watched the uh, the Mil Moscaris film Los Vampiros, and he's in that and oh boy, the scenes of him in a cage looking at all these other vampire women are. You know, I love John Carradine, and I love these movies, and, and I love my Mil Moscaris films, that that scene is really cringeworthy, so I, I understand. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. You know, what are you going to do? But he kept working. I mean, God bless him. He had a wonderful voice and a wonderful presence. Uh, he could be a terrible, terrible ham, but when, when somebody knew how to rein him in, uh, he could be wonderful. I mean, look at him in uh, Bluebeard for Edgar Ulmer for mm-hmm on that so uh voodoo man is not his finest hour on a certain level but he plays this dim-witted uh, uh sort of henchman to bill lugosi named toby and if ever a guy seemed appropriate to be called toby he's the one <laughs> around he's banging away on the bongo drums <laughs> it's wow George Zuko, poor george zuko uh, playing a gas station attendant the most dignified gas station attendant of all time 
and uh, then participating in these rituals uh, going on about Rambuna. Rambuna never fails, even though Rambuna seems to fail every step of the way. And uh, with grease paint and feathers and uh, headdress, it's just, you know, it's a special movie in itself. And I like it a lot. I actually do enjoy that one immensely. Um, for Lugosi, it's definitely a more dignified outing than the Ape Man, for example. This is true. This is true. Well, pick up the Blu-ray, listeners. Pick up the Blu-ray for Kaltiki because, I mean, if you like listening to Troy, and I've heard people say they've enjoyed having you on the show, so for more Troy audio goodness, Kaltiki, uh, Night of the Scorpion, that's not out yet, is it? That is out from Dorado Films, so we've got that. Anything else you can tell us about that's either coming up soon, things that you're working on that you can announce publicly? I mean, I've done a few that I can't announce yet, but I can tell you that just yesterday, as a matter of fact, they, they announced, although I recorded it already, they announced uh, I did the audio commentary for the upcoming uh, Blue Underground edition of the Stendhal Syndrome. It's uh, Dario Argento's uh, film from 1996, actually, for my money, his last great film. I also did a couple of other Argento commentaries, uh, upcoming discs from Arrow of Bird with the Crystal Plumage and Phenomena. I have several more that are recorded but haven't been announced yet, and I'm gearing up to record a couple more that also haven't been announced. So uh, have me back on again someday. I'm sure I can give you some more details about some of those, too. I'm sure we'll have you back on down the line either to talk about some more Lugosi, some more Monogram, or, or something else. Who knows? But I still want to do a Caltiki roundtable, and you're on my list of people I want to have on to do that. So I, I hope you didn't exhaust your Caltiki-ness with the commentary. I want to have you back on for that. I'd be happy to talk about it. It's a fun little movie, and uh, I, I, I'm glad that it's finally, again, got a good release that people can properly appreciate it. What's coming up book-wise for you? Anything on the horizon? Um, I finished up volume three of So Deadly, So Perverse, and that is dealing with the non-Italian Jallo-style movies. So uh, movies from pretty much all over the globe, um, movies from England, America, Spain, uh, even Turkey, uh, India, and uh, Hong Kong, and so forth. So that's a pretty diverse selection of movies, and uh, I've, I've finished the writing of it, so... Hopefully that'll be out this year. I did my half of the 1940s volume of Tome of Terror, uh, an ongoing uh, series of books through Midnight Marquee, which I'm writing with Chris Workman. Uh, it's a horror film encyclopedia series. We've already had one devoted to the silent era from 1895 to 1929. Uh, we've had the 30s volume out, and now the 40s volume. I've done my half, so I actually wrote reviews of a good number of these Lugosi monogram films, as well as some of the other... Um, you know, uh, sort of flying serpent, George Zuko, and, and things like that, as, as well, you know, everything else conceivable, the uninvited, you know, and some of the Valut movies and so forth. So all the 40s horror films are being covered in this book. And uh, my half is done, so I'm not sure when that'll be out, but it's coming. And uh, I'm gearing up to write a book on the Spanish horror icon, Paul Nashi. I have the um, support of his uh, sons, Sergio Bruno, they've both written four words for the book for me, and uh, just a matter of getting rested up a little bit, then I'll be diving into that, so that's coming up as well. Fantastic. Well, Troy, best of luck with the books, the commentaries, and anything else you've got coming up. We will have you back on the show sometime uh, in the near future. Let's keep in touch. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Huge thanks to Troy for being part of the show this week. You know, I could talk Bela Lugosi films 
for hours with anybody who wants to talk about them. I love Lugosi. I know traditionally or or maybe more expectedly, Karloff is considered the better actor per se. But I got to tell you, for my money, I will pick a Lugosi film over Karloff any day. Not to say I don't like Karloff because I love Karloff. But there's something about Lugosi that just draws me in. And to talk to people who also enjoy Lugosi on that level, if not more so than I do, is always a treat. So, Troy, thanks for being part of the show. Troy is going to be on the show again in the future. We've been talking about what his next movie will be to cover on the show. And it's not going to be a Bill Lugosi film. In fact, we're going to leave the 40s behind with Troy. And we're going to get to a movie that was released in 1967. We'll be talking about a movie that has many titles, including The Blood Demon, The Snake Pit and the Pendulum, Castle of the Walking Dead, or as Troy calls it, The Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism. There's also a German title that I can't pronounce, but it's a Christopher Lee film, and I'm looking forward to diving into that with Troy. I'll have you back on the show soon, sir. In the meantime, listeners, you can check out his books. Just look up Troy Howarth on Amazon, and you'll find enough Troy to hold you over until his next appearance on Monster Kid Radio. I can transplant his brain. If I don't, it'll die through lack of oxygen. In his nightmare mind, one more horror, one last horrendous act. Frankenstein must be destroyed. For God's sake, go away! Frankenstein must be destroyed. Peter Cushing, Veronica Carlson. Frankenstein must be destroyed. This picture has been rated M, suggested for mature audiences. This is the voice of the uninvited. Downstairs. It comes from everywhere and nowhere. A house of terror on the haunted cliffs of Cornwall, where the uninvited walk unseen by men. Yet a cat arches its back in fright. <coughs> Flowers are withered by the touch of an unseen malignant hand. Candles flicker and die as a ghostly chill fills the air, and the living are clutched by the icy horror of the restless dead. Stop, Pamela. Don't go near that door. The Uninvited, Dorothy McCardle's gripping novel of the supernatural, comes to the screen, starring Ray Land, Ruth Hussey, Donald Crisp, with Cornelia Otis Skinner, and introducing the exciting beauty of Gail Russell, whose first love is shadowed by the specters of the past. Stella, what is it? Are you ill, Stella? Quiet. Leave her alone. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Stop her, Scott. Shh. I saw this happen once before at a seance. I thought it was a fake. But this isn't. I know. It's dangerous. Please get out of this house now. Now lie there quietly. I'm not afraid of anything here. Then be afraid. Be afraid for heaven's sake. When you were a little child, the evils of this house reached out for you. Stella, go! Go!
Bishkek. We are in great danger. If he hasn't caught on to the fact that we're monsters by now... He has. I am sure of it. We are running out of time. The portal will stay open for only a few more hours. We have got to make sure we send him back tonight. You shouldn't have given Luna Tessia a crossbow. It's way too dangerous. I didn't. No, but you are correct. A crossbow is not to be trifled with. As for you, dear Count, you are quite clever, even for one who has the unfair advantage of living multiple lifetimes. Count Rahoon's Feature of Fright presents a brand new edition of Tales of Drahoon. They are these really cool episodes where I present to you a story from my own past. Well, I don't know how it's scientifically possible, but we make it happen. Theseus and the Minotaur's Joshua Kennedy is Silas Gregory, the Monster Finder General. The most feared monster hunter who ever lived. A man who unwittingly makes his way through my time machine and proceeds to wreak havoc. Can Count Rahoon, that's me, and my assistant Bishkek get him back to the 17th century before it's too late? Or will the universe be in great peril? Find out now in Tales of Drahoon number four. The Wrath of the Monster Finder General. Presented by Count Drahoon's Feature of Fright. Available on camquartertv.com, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, and YouTube. Subscribe to us today, and remember... That as far as things go, when things go bump in the night, there are such things. For the past several weeks, we've been running a contest here on Monster Kid Radio. It's been an opportunity for listeners to win a copy of the new book from Anthony Wendell called The Handbook for Surviving a Giant Monster Attack. You can pick it up yourself for $12 on Amazon, or if you are a Kindle user, you can get it for $4, or if you do Amazon Prime and do the Kindle library thing, you can actually read it for free. Check it out. It's got the Monster Kid Radio seal of approval, but don't take my word for it. Take the word of the person who's about to win a copy of this book. The contest was pretty simple. Anthony produced a promo for the book that I've been running on the past several episodes of Monster Kid Radio, and just for fun, I'm going to run it again. How often has this happened to you? You're on your way home after a long day, when suddenly tragedy strikes. No human mind could imagine the enormous destructive power of this maddened, killing thing. Professor, there's a big lizard back there and he's heading this way, now get aboard! It's the kind of thing which can ruin your weekend. To prevent catastrophe, you need the Handbook for Surviving a Giant Monster Attack. This book features extensively researched methods to help you survive a giant monster event. You'll discover which vehicle you should use for making your escape, which method of counterattack is best for specific types of monsters. Hydrogen weapons, capable of wiping cities, countries off the face of the earth, are completely ineffective against this creature from the skies. And what common mistakes people make while fighting back. So pick up your copy of The Handbook for Surviving a Giant Monster Attack by Anthony Wendell today on Amazon. You can thank us by surviving. To enter the contest, all you had to do was email me what three movies he pulled audio clips from. Well, the three clips that he pulled, whose audio is featured in that promo, are 1959's The Giant Gila Monster, 
1969's The Valley of Guanji, and the 1957's The Giant Claw. I had a number of correct entries emailed to me, so I have to randomly choose one. I've got all the names written down on some pieces of paper here, and I'm going to draw a name here. And the winner is... Ron O is the winner of the book. Ron, I'll be dropping you an email here soon to get your mailing address, and I'll be mailing you a copy of the handbook for surviving a giant monster attack. Thanks to everybody who participated in the contest, and thanks to Anthony for making a copy of this book available for this contest. I don't do enough contests here on Monster Kid Radio, so uh, stay tuned. We'll try to do some more things later this year. And again, congratulations, Ron, on your winning entry. I'll keep playing that promo off and on throughout the year because I think it's a good book. And I think you guys and gals will dig it. So check it out. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank everybody for listening and being part of the show this week just by listening and downloading the show. You help us out. You know how else you can help us out? Well, if you're a user of iTunes, please consider giving us an honest review in the iTunes store. I think we've kind of plateaued at about 82 reviews, and it would be awesome if we can get 100 reviews in iTunes by the end of the year. Now, of course, if you're a Facebook user, we have a Facebook page that you can like and a Facebook group that you can join. Meet up with other listeners of Monster Kid Radio virtually in the Facebook space between episodes or even while you listen. Now, I mentioned our contact information at the beginning of the show. I'm going to mention it again. You can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Call in and let me know what you thought about Invisible Ghost or any of the previous 325 episodes of the podcast. This information is all on our website. Again, monsterkidradio.net is where you're going to want to go to find out everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio. We have a link to our Patreon page where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio and help support the show financially a little bit. Help us keep the lights on here at the Monster Kid Radio castle. Did we decide it was castle? I can't remember if we settled on that or not. Anyway, we currently have 27 patrons and I want to thank all of you for just helping us out that way. Well, what's coming up next week on Monster Kid Radio? Well, you heard her at the top of the episode when I read her email. Terry Mount's going to be on the show because I recorded with her at Monster Bash. So I actually have a recording with her from the Bash. I also have a number of other recordings, including a chat with author Brad A. Braddock, who is the man behind the book Memoirs of Murder. It is a prequel to the 1932 film White zombie. I think you're going to dig that. You're going to dig the chat with Terry. We play the classic five with Terry and I know she was very excited to play it. I hope you're excited to hear it. And I'm bringing some other content from the bash as well. So come back for that in seven days between now and then though. Thank you for listening. And remember that monster kid radio is a registered service mark of monster kid radio, LLC, all original content of monster kid radio by monster kid radio, LLC is licensed under a creative commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song. Colegas de Retrete, it is from the band Los Deformes. They're based out of Spain, and you can find them at losdeformes.bandcamp.com. It's from their B-Sides release. This one and then a song called Lomomia, which is also pretty cool. Check it out and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you their way. My name is Eric M. Cook. This is Monster Kid Radio. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao.